Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head on and shines the light of what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt. This episode is being brought to you by the Born to be a Badass Prep School, the premier self-protection course that teaches you everything you should have been taught about how to be safe in the world as you were growing up, but weren't. If you're like me, you were taught how to cross the street and how to swim, but probably heard very little, if anything at all, about the dangers you might encounter at work, in your relationships, or just out and about in the world. Maybe that's because your parents, like mine, didn't know what to teach you. Or maybe it was just assumed that bad things might happen to other people, but not to you. This is the program I wish had existed when my own daughters were growing up. Heck, it's what I needed to learn and never had a clue about in my younger days. The Prep School is an online program where you will change your mindset and learn how to make the most of your innate abilities to protect yourself. You'll learn what to look for and how to recognize potential dangers, what to do in bad situations, and how to manage fear. You'll discover how to tap into your body's natural protective skills if you have to fight, and how to deal with the aftermath of an incident. Not only is this a virtual program that you can do from anywhere at any time, you get lifetime access to the content, access to my private support group, and you get a gift certificate to use towards one of my live hands-on training events that builds upon the prep school curriculum. Get yourself over to www.cynthiajolicur.com slash prep school to learn more and to register for an upcoming session. As a listener to the Born to be a Badass podcast, you will save more than 60% on your enrollment by entering the code podcast when you register. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur, and today I am so excited to bring on the show a woman that I met through a mutual friend. She has quite an extraordinary story, and her life has really changed because of a couple of things that happened. And I know that as you listen to the stories, and you hear what she has to say, you're going to find a lot of insight and a lot of value. And I just can't wait. I'm so glad that when I asked, she was willing to come on the show. Her name is Shannon Zeman. Shannon lives in California with her husband of 18 years, Troy, and their two boys, Dean and Jake. She graduated from Baylor University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in speech and telecommunications. And she's held several jobs from teaching public speaking at a high school to marketing and sales. And she's been a stay-at-home mom. Now she trains people in active shooter preparedness. Shannon is a -a two-and-a-half-year breast cancer survivor. Battling cancer was the hardest thing that she ever had to do, and she loves to help support others who are on that journey. On October 1st, 2017, Shannon and her husband were attending the Route 91 Festival in Las Vegas when the mass shooting occurred. Shannon and Troy were able to help more than 20 people get out of the venue safely. Because of that experience, they decided to start their own business, training active shooter preparedness, to help bring hope to what seems to be a hopeless situation. So welcome to the show, Shannon. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so glad you said yes when I asked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like to start the interview out with some questions that are sort of opening up warm-up questions and get us in the groove and get us flowing before we really dig into the meaty questions. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. I'm ready. Okay. What did you want to be when you grew up? I actually wanted to be a dolphin trainer at SeaWorld. Oh, my. What inspired that? Um, You know, we lived by the ocean growing up, and um, I grew up going to Marineland, which is a very unique facility. It was in um, Palos Verdes in California, 
And I just loved watching the interaction. I love, I've always loved animals and always um, been very drawn to the ocean. And so one time I saw a show with uh, dolphin trainers and how they interacted with the animals and the dolphins were just so loving and smart. They just locked onto my heart. And that was something that ever since I was little, that was what I wanted to do. Did you ever get to do anything like swim with the dolphins? I did. And uh, just about three years ago on a women's retreat, I actually did. And it was amazing. You could feel that. It was so cool because when you hug them, you can feel their heartbeat, which was such like a connecting experience for me. And then looking into their eyes, it was like such a depth that I felt was in their eyes um, that they could actually kind of feel you and understand you. That was really neat. Wow, that's that's something that I've often thought about doing and have not done yeah. yet. Yes, it's amazing. I would definitely recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> it's on my list. Okay, what is one thing that you dream about doing in the future? Oh, uh, I would love that when my husband is able to retire, that we are able to find a beautiful location and have our own like mini ranch. I would love to, my, my dream is to rescue horses, um, rehabilitate them and then allow them to connect with, um, our military veterans that are dealing with different kinds of trauma because I feel like horses have such a deep soul and, um, they, they can give, reassurance and love to people that in other ways that a lot of animals, especially people can't do. So I would love that to be able to rescue them and then allow them to give back. Oh, that's wonderful. I I do know some people who do similar kinds of work. So when you're ready, I can hook you up. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Last question on this category. What advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your 20s? Oh, my gosh. Go do anything that your heart pulls you to. There are so many times when I said no to traveling with a friend to Europe because I thought it wasn't the responsible thing to do. Um, Maybe not deciding deciding a major that maybe wasn't the exact thing I wanted to do, but it felt like the safest or the like best thing to do. Um, There's so many things I feel like I, I was afraid to do or decided not to do because it wasn't the safest thing. And I don't, I feel like if I just would have taken a, a little bit more chances or opportunities the experiences I would have had would have been unforgettable. Hmm. That's very deep. And I could probably have said exactly the same thing. Yeah. I, I love my life and I don't regret anything that of where I am now, but there are some things where I'm like, Oh, I, I would have liked to have gone to Europe and done that in my twenties because now in my forties, I really can't. Or, you know, different things like that, or maybe following the career path that I wanted with training animals. But instead, I took a career path with a four-year college because I felt like that was a responsible thing to do. And then, you know, instead of following my heart and my passion. I did the exact same thing because when I was younger, I wanted to work with horses and uh, do therapeutic riding program with horses. And then I did the responsible thing. And instead of going off to college where there was an equestrian program, I went off and became a physicist. So (laughs) completely. opposite. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's really interesting that, you know, fear holds us back from doing so many things. And yes, you know, that's something where we grow older and, learn how to navigate through fear better. And and we learn that maybe the growth edge is actually doing the things that feel a little bit scary. 
So correct. Yes. So I'm curious how you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage. Well, so one of the things I think that um, is generational, and I think that if um, we as women have the strength to change it, I think it would be amazing. But unfortunately, in the women culture, I feel like we don't lift each other as much as we should. And instead, we attack each other more. I see it. I've felt it as a young child. You know, you would have friends that then would say negative things about you, or I think it's sometimes it's hard for us to look inside ourselves to address our negatives or our fears. And it's easier to find fault in others. And I feel like as a woman, woman culture, I see it. My, my boys are in junior high and high school. I see it in the, in the girls that, you know, they're around. I see it in the mothers that I interact with. I even see it with my mom and her friends. But unfortunately, we aren't always empowering each other. And I feel that if we had that sisterhood of empowerment to where we are helping each other find the positives and uplifting each other all the time, I feel that that would take away a lot of our fears of failure or of not living up to the expectations of what society has for us. Mm. Yeah, that, that relates very closely to a wish that I hear from younger women when we're talking about safety, personal safety, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, we should all be looking out for each other. We should have each other's backs. And, right. you know, if we see somebody who is potentially in trouble, we should take action and not just leave her hanging out there by herself. And I think that right. desire to feel that, you know, we're, we're part of, I like your term, woman culture, you know, we're part of a sisterhood yeah. where we do look out for each other and spend more time lifting up than tearing down. Yeah. That's, that's a great thing to strive for and to work to build. It's not an easy thing, definitely, because we've been, whether it's trained or just, you know, innate in us, I don't, I don't really think it's born in us, but it, it's something that, you know, is a struggle, no matter who you are all the time, because it's easy to find faults in others, you know, rather than look inside yourself. But like, I, I try every day to find something in, even if I'm at the grocery store, just in one person that I can give them a compliment or, you know, tell them I like their laugh or I love the scarf that they're wearing or something just to add a little bit of sunshine, which then I feel that sunshine also that I've given back. And I feel like if we do those things, it's, you know, we're paying it forward. We're going to, you know, surround people in that and um, give that openness, I guess, to talk to each other also. Yeah. Create the opening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, you know, just thinking about navigating through fear and having to deal with difficult situations. I'm I'm curious, what is the most challenging part of having a husband who's in law enforcement? Oh, um, <laughs> that's funny. Um, <laughs> I would say, um, so we've been married for 18 years. We've known each other since high school. And so I've been involved in Troy's um life and the police work, um, for his whole 24 years of being a police officer. I think that it's the un the unknown of how people are going to react to my husband. I used to always have a saying, I still say it to him this day is I always tell them that I love him and I always tell him to be safe and that I always tell him I will see you tonight. Um, it gives my heart a little bit of pause, but my husband is amazing at his job. And because of that, he's been shot at a lot. He's been ambushed a lot. Several people have had taken attempts on his life. And I think through all of those situations, they have been scary. But I think the scariest thing now is how society has changed their viewpoint on police officers. 
And that majority of, well, it seems that the public viewpoint of police officers, that police officers are bad. And with video or different things, I don't feel like police officers are necessarily getting their fair shake on certain situations. And it's hard for my husband to do the job that he loves in fear that it will be taken a wrong way. So I think that's the hardest now in our life now. The hardest thing is seeing my husband go to work every day to do a job that he loves, but he's not able to do it at his full capacity anymore. Right. And I mean, it's another layer. You know, there's the the inherent dangers of the job, right? Right. And then there's this new layer of of hazard, which is the scrutiny being taken the wrong way or being, I often, I see things where clips like video clips and things are taken out of context mm-hmm. and yes. you don't actually yes, see the entire absolutely. interaction. And, Correct. you know, so you end up having to defend yourself against attacks of a completely different sort. You know, That's than, correct. And, and there's a lot of times where, um, you know, police officers have gotten injured or killed because they are actually second guessing their actions now rather than doing what they're trained to do because of the fact of the scrutiny that um, is out there. Like everybody wants the police officers to be there if they're calling for help, but yet it's not necessarily are all the people backing them, um, you know, when they're out there, unfortunately giving you a ticket or, you know, answering a radio call that they don't know what they're actually going into. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, props to you for having the courage and the capacity to actually stay in relationship and be such a strong support to someone who, whose life's work is in law enforcement. That takes an extraordinary person to do that. Oh, well, thank you. Well, he's extraordinary at what he does. So it's just a blessing that I get to support him in it. Well, I'd like to move on to your breast cancer diagnosis. Since we're talking mm-hmm. about handling fear and navigating through scary and dangerous situations, right? how, how did that unfold when you got the diagnosis and, and how did you navigate through all the emotions that came with it? So I actually um, discovered the lump on my own, um, a very random situation. I was laying on the bed next to my son. I had one arm above my head and the other arm was ran across my breast and I felt it was kind of like felt like a BB. It was, it was very odd. And you could only feel it in that one specific situation. It wasn't when I was standing or anything. It was, it was totally like God just led my hand (laughs) to feel it. Um, At the time, I was 42 and probably the strongest mentally and physically I'd ever been in my entire life. Everything just seemed to be falling into place and clicking for us. And when I felt that lump, it immediately, it just rocked my world. I didn't get my full diagnosis for Two months later, they couldn't find it in my mammogram. They couldn't find it in an ultrasound. It was only because I could feel it that they did the needle biopsy. And it came back. I was DCIS, which is a ductal carnosum, and uh, triple negative. And so the solution was to have the mass removed, and then I would be considered in remission. And so I had, I had the option of a lumpectomy or a singular double mastectomy. And from, from my life and my perspectives, my choice was a double mastectomy. I, this didn't run in my family. I didn't know what caused it. And I just didn't, I kind of felt like I could take somewhat of a control by doing that. And that was, you know, what felt right for me. When we, when they went in to do my double mastectomy, they actually sent, found a second tumor that was right behind the first one that they didn't know anything about. And it was a type of cancer called HER2 positive. So that one's estrogen driven. At that point, I was notified I was going to have to go through chemo. And my reconstructive surgery was put on hold. And from that point, 
Well, can I mean, when I first got my diagnosis, it was, you heard the word cancer, then all I heard was ringing in my ears. I couldn't really hear anything. It's kind of interesting from when you see in the movies or things like that. It was, it was very similar to that, where your body's just trying to, you know, protect you and you're going into the shock. And then to have embraced all of that, to, you know, I'm, I mourn the loss of the feeling in, in my breast, which, of course, I really enjoyed, of course. But as when you have a double mastectomy, they're taking out you know, all those nerves and everything. So mourning the loss of what, something that signifies your femininity, right? Your, your breasts, you know, celebrating the fact that I wasn't going to have to do chemo and I wasn't going to have to lose my hair to then getting that rug ripped out from underneath you again and realizing that you're going to have to go through a year of chemo and lose your hair and have to wait longer for your reconstruction everything it was it was it was definitely the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my life and it I I I went into it with a warrior attitude you know that I was going to beat cancer that cancer wasn't going to beat me that I could take it all on that I could beat it all but I tell you that it it the it really beat me down a lot. There was a lot of times where, you know, I was deep down in that dark hole, just trying anything to, you know, pull myself back out. And I think that it, it wasn't until I was through with what I call my big chemo um, that I actually found an amazing oncology psychologist. And he was reassuring me, you know, that what I was feeling was normal, that, you know, all all this depression and anger and, you know, I, I was mad at certain people because they weren't sick and I was sick, which that's not my personality. And I didn't want to be, you know, but those were the, just emotions that you go through. My body still isn't where it was when all of this started, nor I do I think it ever will be. I now have arthritis. My brain does not work at all. I just, you know, you forget things. I was already had mommy brain, you know, I was hitting in my forties, like going around like crazy. So my brain was already a little taxed. And then now it, my boys always know to try and help me finish my sentences and everything like that. It's just, you know, it's, it's what, where we go with that. I had, I had several bumps in the road that seemed like, you know, major mountains at the time, but with my family and my friends, I was able to take on each and every one of them, but it definitely, gosh, it's not an easy, it's not an easy road. And everyone in my life was there to support me, but it's very hard to support someone if you've never necessarily gone through it. It's a very lonely feeling as I think as the person battling cancer, but also as the caregivers too, it's, it's an extremely lonely time just because, you know, when I say my body aches, a normal person who hasn't gone through that does not understand the totality of what I'm talking about, that my body aches. But then when you find people that have actually gone through it and they say like, I know there, there's like this relief in your body. Cause you're like, Oh my gosh, they really do know. They really do understand. And so from, from my entire journey through this, the double mastectomy, I, the, um, I had, I've had, Oh my gosh, four or five surgeries. I would have to go back and count cause it's quite a blur in that two, two year span. And I, I don't ever want anyone else to go through it without the support system of at least someone who understands what you're going through. I've made a lot of friends who had different types of cancer and maybe we haven't gone through the exact same journey because no one does, but we all have that understanding that links us together or we can find someone that does. And so I think that's where I want to take this 
I always, I call it stupid cancer. That was my word during cancer. Everything was stupid people because <laughs> that was a word I could say around anyone. You know, it, how are you feeling today? It's just stupid. That would be my answer because I felt like crap and it was stupid and I just didn't, you know, want to go into it, nor did I feel anybody wanted to hear about it anymore because it just felt like it went on forever. But we put a lot of, we turned a lot of positivity out of it. Um, when I started to lose my hair, I decided I, want to have a, I wanted to have a hair cutting party. And this was my way of taking control that I was going to take my hair, not chemo, not cancer, anything like that. So the day that my hair was just falling out, like it, it it would just barely touch it and clumps would come out. I sent a text to every single person that had been supporting me in the short period of the journey that far, whether it had been someone that I didn't even really know, but brought me, you know, brought my family food to people that were at my house every day. And 35 people showed up that night and everybody brought wine because that's my favorite thing. And we had some snacks and we all drink wine and every single person that was there cut a, cut a piece of my hair off. And then my husband and my boys, they shaved my head. And uh, it, w- it was such an empowering emotional moment that it made me feel like I could, I could make it. I yeah. love that. That is such a wonderful example of, creating a way for everybody to support you and for you to be the agent of what was happening rather than have something happening to you. Yes. That was very important to me. In, in, in this cancer journey, it's very hard to find those moments because so much is taken from you and dictated to you on your journey. But when you can find those moments, you, you just really, they're precious moments. Yes. So yeah. at, at what point did you, well, have you reached the end of the process? Um, well, so I, um, well, I'm close. I'm, I'm in remission, which is fantastic. And I do have to take a medication called tamoxifen and I have to take it for a total of 10 years. So I will be on that for eight more years. And that keeps me out of, it keeps the estrogen out of my body, which is what drives the type of cancer I had. So it has side effects like aches, body aches and things like that. But I'm done with all the treatments. So that's phenomenal. It's just now learning to deal with, you know, arthritis in your body, your memory loss, the energy levels a little lower and, and then also aging on top of that. So it's just that, that vicious cycle that we all go through, right. And finding what, finding where my joy is now, my outlook on life has of course changed a lot. And yeah, I just, I feel like one of the best things I can do is give back to others to help, you know, put, put that positive spin on that stupid (laughs) cancer that I had to go through. Yes. Yeah. So had, had you finished all of your treatments and things by the time you went to Las Vegas? So that's very interesting. I finished my, what I called the big chemo. So I had six rounds of big chemo and they were every three weeks. And I finished those in April of 2017. And I still had my baby chemo through the end of 2017, but it didn't give me the side effects that my big one did. So my hair was starting to grow back. I was starting to feel better. My, my friends and my husband and I had been going to Stagecoach, um, which is a country festival out in the desert in California for seven years. And that year, and it's always in April. So that year I wasn't able to go. And there was a new country venue called Route 91 that was in Las Vegas. And it was going on its third year and it was going to be in October, end of September, beginning of October, 2017. So we all decided 
to celebrate that I was done with chemo and going, you know, feeling better and everything. We were all going to go to Route 91. So we did. And we were having the most fantastic time. The venue was amazing. The artists that were performing were just great. It was a small venue. It was so much fun. And then on um, October 1st, um, which was a Sunday, it was the last day of the three-day event, we'd been having just an amazing time. We had Big and Rich had performed, and I'd never seen them before and always just loved their music. And we'd been right up in the front with them, and they're so patriotic, and they're just so much fun. And now, like I say, we were all right up in front at the stage. My husband was not, because my husband's a police officer, and he has been trained that, you know, to go right into the center of an area is not a good idea. Because if something happens, you're kind of stuck. And we've always made fun of my husband about this, <laughs> which really makes me feel horrible now. But we'd go to venues. He would always be looking for the emergency exits, always be standing kind of located to an emergency exit. And because of that, he didn't like to go in to the center of crowds or like we were going up to the front of the stage. So I had decided I was going to, since Big and Rich were done, I was going to go back and hang out with my husband. So Jake Owen was another performer that came on and we had a great time. We were a little bit farther back. And the last performer was Jason Aldean and the crowds had gotten really large. So my husband and I had moved back kind of, uh, into this walking path where you could um, stand and dance a little bit easier. Plus, it was really close to the bars, so that's really convenient. Um, and we, two of our friends had come to join us, and my husband and her husband went to go get us some drinks, and my girlfriend and I were dancing, and I heard something that I thought were fireworks. And I looked up at the stage, I'm thinking like, He's the last singer. They're setting off fireworks off of the stage. And, but there were no fireworks. Jason Aldean kept on singing. And so in my head, I wasn't thinking anything was going wrong. And so we just kept on dancing. The next round of what I thought were fireworks, it kind of sounds like the fireworks on a string. You know, the old ones were like poppity pop, pop, pop. Like I heard that again. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, some crazy person brought in fireworks and are lighting them off inside the venue. And at that time, the crowd started to react. So the first time the crowd didn't react at all. No, there was no moving. Jason Aldean was still singing. And then on the second time I heard it, the crowd started to run and Jason Aldean ran off the stage. I'm still thinking it's fireworks. And my main goal is to get my girlfriend and I out of the way of being trampled because you've got over 20,000 people at this venue. Minimum of 7,000 people were standing in front of me towards the stage and they're all going to be running back towards me because that's the only entrance and exit that they know of is behind me. So my girlfriend and I wind up going behind this little corrugated metal box that was Maui Jim sunglasses and that's where they were storing their sunglasses and luckily my husband and his friend came to the exact same spot so we kind of barricaded there and that was when my husband had figured out that we were actually being shot at and at this point I thought the entire time I thought the shooter was in the venue um, but at this point, my husband had figured out that it was someone outside of the venue just because of the trajectory of the bullets because they were coming down, but didn't know where. So we were in the venue the entire time of the shooting, which was a little over 10 minutes, felt like over 30 minutes. And during that period of time, my husband was trying to assess what was happening, um, where the bullets were coming from and everything, because we had about 20 well, we had about 40 people that were clustered of where we were hiding. And he was trying to figure out how we were going to get all these people out. And he was shot in the thigh. And at that point, we realized we had to move out of the location. We couldn't just kind of stay where we were. And um, so 
with my husband's directions, uh, we were able to use what the FBI recommends is the run, hide, fight. So we had made a plan of where we were going to run to, which was like an inside covered bar still in the venue. And out of about the 40-ish people that were in the area, probably about half of them were, were like frozen. They were just, they, their bodies couldn't move. They weren't really processing what we were talking about. And unfortunately, we couldn't get all of them out. But we were able to help like 20 people get over to the bar. And then at that point, we worked our way out of the venue. My husband, did, we, we didn't go where the masses were going. We went, you know, down alleys because you just don't know. You don't know if there's a shooter outside. You don't know if it's a single person. You, you know, we just didn't know anything. It was complete craziness that was happening. And so my husband didn't get medical attention for five hours because there was always someone that was needing more help than us. You know, it was it was so sad to see all the trauma and devastation of all the people around you where like just 15 minutes earlier, we were all dancing and celebrating and having this phenomenal time and how one person could just take that away from you was mind blowing. Absolutely mind blowing. Wow. That's just a mind boggling story to hear. And you know, to to think about the fact that, well, thank God your husband had some awareness and was able to come up, you know, with a plan and that at least half the people listened, you know, and were able to move. Mm-hmm. Thank God there was a place that you initially were able to take some cover, you know, not knowing right. where things were coming from and that there was then a covered area that you could run to. It's an extraordinary sequence of events. And it's so easy to imagine being there, just hearing you tell that story. And it's so easy to visualize the chaos and, um, and that, that sense of like, because it's happening, like you really don't know what's going on and you just do the best you can. And kudos to you and to your husband and your friends for being able to stay stay conscious, stay aware, you know? Um, it, yeah. It, and it's amazing. I mean, those are things that I've really learned since then about how your body reacts to different situations on your fight and flight. And, um, you know, if your body, you know, has a tendency to freeze or, you know, um, which that was something I experienced because I was trying to get people up off of the ground and they, they physically could not do it. And, you know, to understand what's happening in your body or what's happening to others. So then you could potentially help yourself or others in that situation or stimulus overload, you know, where you almost become like a zombie where your body is moving, but your brain's not really working. Or we saw all these different things happening and it was, it was quite a lot to take in and that you hope no one would ever have to go through again. And, and by, educating and understanding it, maybe we can help stop that, you know? Yes. And I think it's easy if you haven't been in a situation like that to say, oh, well, I would just, you know, X, Y, Z. Oh, correct. Yeah. And (laughs) you really don't know what you're going to do when you're in a situation where, you know, that was a massive ambush. You were talking about your husband having been ambushed at work, you know, and that, that concert scenario was a massive ambush of, thousands of people. And, right. You know, how on earth can you predict how you're going to respond in that situation? Right. And like my husband said, you know, he's, he has been through hundreds of different trainings, whether it's active shooter training, different tactical trainings, everything. And, you know, nothing ever prepares you for that. You know, he wasn't on duty. He didn't have any, you know, he was just a civilian. Like even if you've been trained for years and years and years upon something in that type of, there's no way that you can be ready for it. So what, what exactly was it that allowed you to get out of that shock and that spike of fear and that, that momentary freeze and actually get into action? So I would say 
the first thing that I, I think benefited me was that I felt like it was still fireworks and that I was just protecting myself from being trampled. So I didn't initially go into that, that knowing that it was someone was shooting at us. And then I really believe that through my experience with my husband and his job, I was able to compartmentalize a little bit about what was happening to us. And I was able to listen and also help give directions to people. I never would have ever thought I was more of, of that type of person. Everything went extremely slow for me. It was very methodical. I was looking at people running almost in slow motion, taking in faces of what was going on with people, seeing the situation, your sounds, um, how my body like heightened certain parts of, you know, my hearing and my sight and everything was really amazing. But I also think it had a lot to do with how I had just battled cancer and gone through the most difficult thing, I, thing I've ever done in my life. And I think that gave me the will to help give me the will to get us out of there. I, I remember thinking at one point when I thought the shooter was in the venue, I thought I was going to see my husband get shot because I felt like even if the shooter, if the shooter was coming at us, my husband would protect people before he would run. So I had a plan of how I was going to pull him out and where I was going to take him. And then my other thought was that if I did see the shooter, I was, you know, that shooter wasn't going to take me down. I had just battled for an entire year for my life and I was going to take that shooter down. Like it, it was like some fire that was inside me that was just like, Oh, like if I have to fight, I will fight. And I don't necessarily know if I would have had that prior to my cancer. I might have, how would I know? Right? Like you never know what, you're necessarily going to be until you're faced with that. But, and then I also think I was so blessed to have my husband with me and that I have always trusted and believed in him 120%. So then I think that also gave me a lot of grounding also. So I became more of his partner, which he said really helped him in this situation too, because then he felt like he didn't have to protect me. He, we could be a team. And so he could focus on helping others also. Wow. It's interesting hearing you describe that because in the courses that I teach, we often, you know, we talk about two things. One is, is knowing what your personal reason to survive a situation is. And, mm. you know, for you, I'm sure that that was like foremost and present in your mind because you had just gone through that entire battle for your life with cancer. Right. You know, there was something that was like, I'm going to lick this cancer. And I'm hazarding a guess that it probably had something to do with not wanting to leave your kids and not wanting to leave your husband. Behind. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> my, you know, myself and my whole family and friends, everybody had just gone through this battle with me for an entire year. And then to have it be for nothing. Right. Oh, no, that that was not going to happen. Right. Um, and that's the other thing know. that that popped into my mind is um Coach Tony Blauer often talks about this sense of will and indignation, you know, that there that people can get through these kinds of events through sheer will and indignation, even if they have no training. And, you know, just listening to you, that sense of indignation of, oh, hang on a minute. I just went through all of this, all of this cancer treatment and everything, and I survived that, and I am not going down here. You know, right. that, that I, came I, through so clearly. That rage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that came through so clearly. And, uh, you know, and also just that sense of teamwork between you and your husband is phenomenal. And thank goodness that you had all of those years together and that deep trust and, you know, knowing yes. that you could rely on each other. Um, what a, what a wonderful extra benefit. Yes, it's very true. Yeah. So tell yeah. me, you know, what motivated you after this to start teaching other people how to be prepared for mass violence and active shooter situations? Well, so I do feel that one of the reasons why 
I was able to be more of a partner to my husband in this situation was because of the education that I've just received, just luckily by hearing him talk, whether trainings that he's done or when I go to venues with him. And, and the reason being because it's been ingrained in my brain. I walk into the grocery store. I take in where the exits are to the grocery store, the back exits, everything. Not, not being paranoid or anything, but just being aware. And I think because of that, I knew a little bit more. Of, uh, I, could, I could, let's see, what do I want to say? I could have a plan of what I was going to do in this intense situation. When my husband, when we got back from Route 91, my husband's police department asked him if he would like to do active shooter training for um, the companies in their city. And so my husband said, sure, and started doing the shorter trainings and telling people a little bit about our story and about what run, hide, fight is and how you can use it. And um, he had noticed that, you know, prior to the shooting, every, all of his training, every, every time he would train something was extremely tactical because that's what he's been trained out his life. And now his training and his, the way that he talked was a lot more softer, a lot more in quotes, I'll say civilian-like for him is what the way he would say it. And every time he would give these talks, people would come up and thank him and say that, you know, there's nothing out there like what he's providing and what the department's providing and how they would just love to have their families hear this, their children hear this, their coworkers hear this. And, you know, unfortunately, the department doesn't provide that, you know. So we had a friend that approached Troy and said, I would really love for you to be able to walk through with my employees through our building and show them what they can do if an active shooter comes in to our building. And my husband just thought that was a phenomenal idea and did it one time for them. He had um, one of the first guys in the office, he said, my office is right here at the end of the hall. There's nowhere to go. The hall is directly here. I am just sitting and I'm going to die. And so Troy walked him through as if he was the active shooter to show him all the deficiencies that a shooter has and all the advantages of, a, of civilians that we actually have on the shooter. And after Troy did this training, that employee told him, I actually feel like I could survive. At least I have feel like I have hope. I just don't feel hopeless that there's no option for me. And that was exactly what my husband has always wanted for people is to give them hope in a hopeless situation. That's why he went into police work, right? That's why, you know, he's done so many of these things of dedicating his life to help others. And after he did that, he was so fired up, loved the feedback that he was getting from people. And then that company actually wanted us to do the other five offices that they had. And at that point, my husband and I kind of sat down and talked to each other and said, unfortunately, we think that there, we might have a business here that can feel the need for everyone to empower people. And so he went back to his chief of his police department and got the blessing to run with this. And from that moment on, we've just been educating people on how to be prepared in an active shooter or workplace violence, or it's really, it's, you know, you can use it anywhere you go. And it's just about being vigilant on knowing your surroundings. You don't have to, you know, be crazy scared or any, you know, you don't have to be like my husband and, you know, checking every single corner. But knowing when you go to the movie theater, where are the exits? 
you know, when you're going to putt-putt golf, what are your options? You know, where can you go if you need it? So we've built this business and our hope is in five years, our business is not needed anymore because the active shootings have stopped. And we feel like we can do that by empowering everyone and letting them know that they have options and that, you know, this doesn't mean that their life is over. And even we talk about how, even if you're shot, like my husband, you know, your body's resilient, never give up. You need to always keep on going. And so it's really interesting. We do it with, we have a PowerPoint presentation that we give and it talks about the evolution of active shooters and what the police department has learned, like on barricading rooms, locking doors, turning off lights, like a lot of different ways that the police now go to these shooting situations and how they handle it. So we educate people on that. We talk about our experience at Route 91 and, and Troy tells his story, I tell my story, which are two very different stories on how we perceive the situation. And, and then we talk about ways in like your workplace or even at home, like we have to be aware of what's going on in people's lives. We can't just turn a blind eye to someone when they're having a difficult time or you see kind of a difference in their mood or their personality and everything. We're not saying that all those people are going to be shooters, but there's something wrong in their life and we should be either work, reaching out to management or if it's a kid to their parents or to schools or if it's your friend talking to your friend to see how we can help others. Because you never know. You, you might be not only helping that person, but you could be seeing hundreds of lives also. So we talk about those different things. The other thing we do is we do an on-site walkthrough, which is like what I was talking about. Troy walks you through at your office or, or church or school or anything as if you are the active shooter. And you learn all the disadvantages of an active shooter how and you learn how to run, how to hide, you know, God forbid, if you have to fight, we talk about a few of those different ways, how to barricade. So it's really about putting that thought into your brain. So if for any unfortunate reason you are faced with it, you have ideas to recall and to maybe put into play to help you or to help others around you. Right. You're, you're helping people create what we call mental blueprints of situations. Yes. And, you know, that's like software for your brain in the moment, yes. just like through, through the available software. It's like, aha, this is, this is similar. I have a clue. Correct. Yeah. Yes. I'm and curious. And to know that you have options. Oh, yes. Well, that's, that's one of the things I think that paralyzes people is they just don't think that there are any options. Right. Yeah. So I'm curious, you mentioned pointing out some of the disadvantages that a shooter has. Mm -hmm. Can you give some examples of that? Uh, well, one of the biggest things we talk about is, you know, it's not easy to shoot a gun. You know, if you've ever done it and you go to a shooting range, you know, it takes time. You got to get your stands ready, right? You've got to get your arms where you want to do. You're going to work on your sights. And before you pull the trigger, you take a deep breath in and you exhale even before you pull the trigger. And then you hope that you hit the target. At least I do, right? You know, and so we talk about, you, you know, someone coming in, in this situation, they're very stressed out and very heightened already and they're moving. So already they have the disadvantage of firing the gun because it's not easy to fire a gun when you're moving or when, you know, there's chaos and anything like that. So because of that, if you are smart in how you run or how you hide, those are the advantages for us as a civilian. So you don't run in a straight line. You're going to traverse side to side or different ways because if you run in a straight line, that's going to be an easier target. So we talk about different things like that. We talk about finding concealment or cover. So, you know, 
are you going to be concealed where like you're hiding behind something or are you going into complete cover where maybe you're in a room that you've, you've barricaded and they can't come in? Those are all different options that we talk about. We walk around the facility, we examine where would be great. You know, sometimes it's a, it's a big room, so you don't really have necessarily a lot of cover. So how are you going to conceal yourself? We, we always, I always tell people, you know, in these situations, it's like when you're five and you're playing hide and seek, you want to hide so they cannot find you. It's not just getting under a little tiny table. Like you want to make sure that, you know, it, an active shooter event usually lasts about four minutes and they are not going to be working hard to find you. They are trying to move through as quickly as possible. So if you can give them conflict and make them work for it, you're going to slow them down and then, you know, hopefully and save your life and others' lives. So what are some of the most common misconceptions or false beliefs about active shooter situations that you run into? That's a good question. Well, I think, I think our biggest one, which I keep on repeating over and over again, is that people feel that we don't have the advantage. People feel that the shooter has all the advantages and all the control. And that's not true. If, if you can get out of their sight or cause any kind of conflict, whether it's shutting a door behind you, whether it's, you know, if you're in a room, locking the door and barricading it, all these different things, their mind process, it slows them down. And you're, they've found that creating conflict is what helps you survive in these types of situations. Not necessarily in, our, in ours in Route 91 because he wasn't in the venue with us. Ours is kind of a, a unique situation in that. Like we couldn't cause conflict for him because he was 32 floors up. But, you know, there's a lot of times that if people run, if they don't, I don't, coward's not the right word, but if you just don't lay down and let things happen, if you, if you fight, if you run, if you hide, it's all kinds of conflicts. Those are the ways, that's what's going to help you. Yes, I would, I would think that would be because, you know, similar to a one-on-one assault the perpetrator, the predator has a plan in mind, you know, an expectation of how it's going to go. And anything that you do that disrupts that plan and changes the flow of what they thought was going to happen sort of puts them on the back foot and, you know, maybe even into a fear loop themselves of, you know, oh shit, now what am I going to do? That's not what I expected. Yes, that's exactly it. You know, you, you're making their brain process, which is slowing them down. And it's giving you the advantage because you have an opportunity, you have more seconds. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the essential must-know concepts or strategies and tools that people really need in order to be safe and active shooter mass violence situations? So know your environment. If you're at work and you go in and out of the same door every single day and you have more options on doors or stairways, change it up, use them, you know, every day, use a different entrance, use a different exit. You're training your brain to know your areas. So then if something is to happen and it's, happening at the front door, you're not frozen with not knowing what to do. So it's by being vigilant. And like you said, laying that blueprint in your brain to where that's another millisecond that you don't have to waste because you know your options. So always practice that even driving home. I mean, that's a great way to, you know, not driving the same way every single time because then if there's a car accident or anything sometimes we're stuck well where do we go now and in these situations you don't always have like ways or google maps to you know tell you where to go so those are definitely um 
a great way to give that mind training. And, you know, we don't want people to think about this or live in fear about it, but do look around your office that you're in, evaluate, you know, does my door have a lock on it? Does it swing in or out? What would I use to barricade that door if I needed to? If you have like a window and you're on the bottom floor, do you have a glass break, you know, tool that will break that glass if you need to get out in any kinds of situations? These are all the things and, and it's, it's not something that you can think of one time and be done with. This is a perishable skill, just like working out in the gym or anything like that. If you do it once, that's great, but your muscles aren't going to stay there. So you want to be training yourself at all times and knowing what your options are always. And that's one of the ways that you're going to empower yourself and you're going to give hope because your mind is already going to be one of your powerful tools and on your team. Yes, it it sounds like what you're what you're talking about is not treating this as a one-off sort of a thing but creating a habit. Creating Correct. habits of checking things out wherever you go and just right. running through a little what if scenario when you go to a new place. Right. And and I'm just thinking how this also applies to home invasions. Oh, yes. You know, it's the same concept basically. Absolutely. I mean, even when we were, when I was young, you know, the the biggest threats were like, you know, fire and you would have a route in your house. What what would you do if there was a fire in your kitchen? How would you, you know, I lived in a two-story house. How would we get out if there was a fire, you know, downstairs, you were upstairs. We had those plans. I remember going over those plans. I remember talking about those plans as a kid with my, with my parents. And so it's, it's not a bad thing to talk about it. It's not a bad thing to set a plan. You're not saying, you know, that this is going to happen to you. We hope that it never happens to anyone. Just like we hope our house doesn't catch on fire or anything like that, but we have to have a plan. And when you have a plan, you're giving yourself power. Yes. Yes. As with all self-protection conversations, you know, these are things that we hope that you never, ever, ever have to use. Right. But far better to have thought through things and developed some plans and done a little bit of mental and emotional preparation and not need it than be in the moment and and need to take action and and just be lost because you haven't prepared. So, yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So how can people connect with you? And do you have any plans to do any online programs or, you know, for things who are not in your area? Because you're in Southern California, right? We are in Southern California, but we are happy to travel anywhere. The hard thing about doing something online is that what we're teaching is very relevant to each area. So if we're teaching this at a school, it's very relevant for their surroundings. If we're teaching it in a large venue, that's very open. It's very relevant for them. So online training, as in if we videoed it and just ran it over and over again, we don't feel like that is, is going to help the people the way that we're really wanting to. We've actually done a training where we have done it for several offices that are around the United States. And we've done like a Skype meeting to where we're able to answer live questions at the time. Or we've also traveled and done like walkthroughs in different uh, states and everything. So we're not just tied to Southern California. We will we'll go wherever and whenever people <laughs> want you know, our help and our guidance on it. We do have a website so people can look us up and and find out exactly what we do on our website. And it's S-C-Z-ActiveShooter.com. And it stands for Security Consultant Zeman, ActiveShooter.com. And 
Our phone number is on the website and our email address also. And I am checking that all the time. So we're always happy to answer questions if we can, um, because our main goal is just to educate everyone. Um, But we would love to, you know, come anywhere and talk to anybody about it. Well, that's great. And I will make sure that all of your contact info is in the show notes for this episode so that people can follow up. And Perfect. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being so open and sharing so much that is so important for people to hear and understand. And, and I hope that our listeners really learn a lot from this conversation. Thank you. I appreciate you, you being here and doing this. Oh, I appreciate you doing this podcast. It's so amazing for all of us to learn from each other on how we can all be stronger together. And I think it's just so fabulous. And I'm so blessed that you asked me to be part of this. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.